Good afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Coop and welcome to the Spoken Metal Show. This episode is a a, a slightly different one than something I would normally do. I'm going to be reading some excerpts from a book. So this is kind of an audio book episode, which is which is interesting and a, and a nice way yeah, for those that maybe don't own this particular book to listen and get maybe a little bit of an introduction to it and encourage them to maybe buy the book. The book is by my good friend Nadim Hassan and obviously Ned's been on the show before and we've done he's been part of the Q&As and we actually did as part of the book launch did a Q&A which I thought was really well received a fantastic amount of messages and support about that particular show and a lot of friends and a lot of uh, people suggesting things and coming up with ideas and coming to me with various projects which was which was absolutely superb and I suggested to to Ned that we should do it as maybe as an audio book certainly the first the first chapter and Ned Ned was like, "This is a great idea." So it took a little beat beat for um, the, them to agree to do it. So what you're going to hear um, in a little while is me basically reading uh, the foreword and the chapter of uh, Nadima Sands' Metal on Merseyside: The Music Scenes, Community, and Locality, uh, which is a fabulous book. I wrote the foreword because I believed in what Ned was doing. I thought it's it's a wonderful document of. The local scene and uh, the metal scene, any uh, for anywhere. I think it's an interesting read. It's opened my eyes to things I, I was not aware of, and challenges that I was not even uh, even aware of as well. And I found it absolutely fascinating. Uh, and I just wanted to open that up to everybody that maybe didn't get the book or had maybe missed it and, and didn't realise it was out. And I will put links, obviously, to where you can you can buy said book. And hopefully, this introduction will give give you kind of a a little bit of a primer. To what is it's like? It's really weird doing an audio book. I'm not uh, Stephen Fry. I got, I'm got like the wonderful reading voice and what have you. Um, and also, there's weird things like when you're reading it. You know, um, how do you do quotes and things like that? And, and I was new to to that. I I, I didn't really kind of understand how to do that. So I had to learn a little bit about that. So there's some things. You know, forgive me. This is the first time I, I've done it, but I thought it would be useful. And I thought it would be interesting and Hopefully you enjoy it. It's nice to listen to audiobooks. I've I listen to a lot of audiobooks myself when I can't actually physically sit and, and, and read a book. And it, it's a really great way of ingesting information and ingesting um, all kinds of literature. So this is going to be me reading the foreword, which I wrote uh, because I believe in what Ned's doing and because I I, I think this, this book is incredibly important. Naturally, I talked at length about the scene and the local scene and supporting it. And this book is the... The academia side of it for me is that, yes, we can talk about um, things on social media and, and, and what have you, but this is when you look at the actual sort of economical reasons and the sociological reasons why um, scenes both exist and don't exist. And, uh, and, uh, and I really think it offers a, a wonderful insight into that. Um, I want to say just a big thank you to, to Palgrave and Macmillan and Emily Russell there uh, for allowing me to, to do this. Um, hopefully it's extremely well received and maybe we read the whole the whole book maybe we, maybe I do that um, I don't know how long it's going to take so this could be quite a long one I think it, it is I think it's about 20 odd pages 23, 24 pages uh, including the foreword so I, I'll try in my best reading voice to, to, to make it interesting for you and not trip too much but it's a, it's a weird thing I've never done an audio book before so this should be a lot of fun and I hope you enjoy it too um, so um, let's get straight to it. This is me reading the foreword and then the chapter, the first chapter of Nadim Hassan's Metal on Merseyside, Music Scenes, Community and Locality. 
Forward. In order to truly understand something, you have to immerse yourself in it. This is never more true than when applied to a musical movement, a genre, and its scene. Often misunderstood and much maligned, metal to the uninitiated can seem a closed world with its own dress code, language, and eccentricities. I am the host of a podcast about metal and heavy music, The Spoken Metal Show, devoted to supporting Merseyside Metal. This remit has allowed me to speak on behalf of, compare, and work with many artists, promoters, and venues within the scene. Unsupported, underfunded, and very much underappreciated, the Merseyside Metal scene requires awareness of its existence and importance both artistically and sociologically. There is no better guide to this scene than Nadim Hassan. Foremost because he has a deep appreciation for rock and metal, fostered from a life with it as a consistent accompanying soundtrack, but also because of his devotion to gaining an insider's perspective on that scene. Being able to absorb the Merseyside metal and rock scene in a Hunter and Hell's Angels sense of total immersion, attending shows at all levels, underground and mainstream, and engaging with figures within to understand the minutiae and subtleties in a style of music mistakenly painted with broad strokes is the key part of this work. To then dissect it from a critical point of view is where the book shows its true worth, applying insights and direction to where the scene may go and how to help local artists, promoters and fans discover, curate and ultimately support a scene rich in creativity, originality and longevity. Host of The Spoken Metal Show, myself, Mark Cooper. Chapter 1 Introduction. In the shadow of Beat City, metal on Merseyside. In December 2015, it was announced that Liverpool, a city in the north of England, was awarded the status of UNESCO City of Music. The announcement was the culmination of work that had started prior to Liverpool's year as European Capital of Culture in 2008. Notions of musical heritage were central to the rebranding of Liverpool as a city of culture at this time. Various writers have illustrated how this rebranding portrayed Liverpool as a particular kind of music city. For instance, Lashua notes that just as an imagery of Liverpool Pier Head and its iconic Three Graces, the Liver Building, the Cunard Building and the Port of Liverpool Building, became a central signifier of Liverpoolness, 2008 served to entrench a similar kind of Three Graces in Liverpool's popular music landscapes and heritages. The central focus was, unsurprisingly, on the Cavern Club from the Mersey Beat era, which Spencer Lee had dubbed the most famous club in the world, due to its role in helping to foster the phenomenal success of the Beatles and the Mersey Beat explosion in the 1960s. In addition, Eric's, a club synonymous with the 1970s and 1980s punk and post-punk scenes, and Cream, a club that would come internationally associated with British dance music in the 1990s, all became landmarks that came to represent significant moments in Liverpool's musical heritage. During 2008, there were a host of events that showcased the diversity of music in Liverpool, illustrating the branding of Liverpool as the world in one city. However, the staging of global mega-events during the Capital of Culture year, such as the opening concert and the Paul McCartney Liverpool Sound Concert, reinforced the notion that the city's musical heritage revolved around these three graces, particularly the Beatles and Merseybeat. Thus, amidst the optimism and the attempts to rebrand the area in this period, in relation to rock music, there was a striking contradiction. The promotion of Liverpool's new cultural identity in the build-up to 2008 paradoxically involved the privileging of a familiar rock music heritage for Liverpool and Merseyside. 
Once again, it was primarily the Beatles and long-established popular music scenes in clubs that had commercial visibility and international prestige and reputation that were showcased in high-profile events. Liverpool's year as capital of culture reinforced familiar narratives about the area's rock music culture and heritage, with the Beatles' history especially constituting a powerful, dominant disclosure. Lashua et al. argue that a select set of stories dominates histories of Liverpool's popular music. These dominant stories create a kind of master narrative or master map of popular music heritage in the city. Such narratives have effectively excluded or marginalised other histories of music in Liverpool. For instance, Lashua et al. and Brooken identified the 1970s pub rock scene as a hidden history hidden between Liverpool's Mersey Beat and post-punk scenes. This book examines another largely hidden Liverpool music scene, the hard rock and metal scene that has its roots in the late 1960s. This is a scene that has thus far appeared largely invisible in historical and academic writing on the city's music. Indeed, in his historical account, journalist Paul Denoyer goes as far as to claim that Liverpool has never produced a heavy metal band of any consequence. In 2007, when Denoyer repeated this claim in a new edition of the book to coincide with Liverpool's eminent year as European capital of culture, Carcass, the influential British metal band who had been considered one of the pioneers of the grindcore and death metal subgenres, renouncing their reformation after a 10-year absence. The band would go on to play major international metal music festivals and release their critically acclaimed comeback album, Surgical Steel, in 2013. The fact that the various members of Carcass had grown up in Merseyside and started life playing gigs in venues like Planet X in Liverpool City Centre seemed to be entirely lost on Denoyer. Likewise, he did not appear to follow the career of Anathema, a band who had started out playing in Planet X in the early 1990s and were quickly signed to Peaceville Records, claimed early albums helped to develop the death doom and gothic doom metal subgenres. One of the aims of this book, therefore, is to reveal partially hidden histories of hard rock and heavy metal music in Liverpool and Merseyside. Consulting oral testimonies from artists, fans and promoters, together with journalistic and academic accounts to follow, will shed light on places and people hitherto marginal or absent from many local music history narratives. However, the main motivation behind this book is to not somehow rescue metal and hard rock from its relative exclusion within existing historiography of popular music in Liverpool, nor is the research for this book an attempt to fashion a place for hard rock within Liverpool's authorised musical heritage, which would be a process akin to writing graffiti onto a static wall of fame. On the contrary, by moving beyond the usual suspects of Liverpool's music histories, the project seeks to examine the continuing implications of metal's hidden histories for different people involved with its music and its cultures. Consequently, the book recognises in accordance with Roberts and Cohen's critical approach to popular musical heritage that musical heritage is less about the past than on the ways in which the past informs what is happening now. Therefore, interviews with Merseyside's metal musicians, promoters, fans and other scene members in which they were asked to share their individual and collective memories of their involvement with metal scenes past and present are central to the account that follows. These oral and written testimonies partly reveal the legacy of hard rock and metal's historical marginalisation within the region. Some who are actively engaged with producing metal music culture within Merseyside do so with an awareness that the individuals and sites associated with their scene, a term that we will see can have multiple meanings, have been largely omitted from authorised heritage narratives. Whether these are official declarations of sites or individuals worth commending by organisations like the National Trust, or the unofficial declarations of musical journalists, historians and academies. 
Yet metal and hard rock's relatively marginal status within the city of Liverpool and the Merseyside region is down to far more than the absences within heritage narratives. As will be illustrated, successive scenes have been shaped by the range of factors including an increasingly shifting circuit for live rock music, the impact of regeneration and gentrification, subsequent loss of key scenic infrastructure such as live music venues, record shops and other places where fans and artists can congregate. Struggles to contend with the effects of redevelopment are not, of course, confined to those involved with the hard rock and metal. Culture-led urban regeneration within different parts of Liverpool has ironically often led to the displacement or threat of displacement of specific music and creative businesses. In addition, on both a national and international level, many popular music scenes within cities and regions have had to relocate their more peripheral locations due to city centre redevelopment and gentrification. Scenes then, as Will Straw suggests, can be at the forefront of struggles to arrest urban and cultural change. They can be more celebrated for, as Straw puts it, their declarative properties for their role as repositories of practices, meanings and feelings threatened by the process of gentrification and commodification. However, the potential for certain scenes to become meaningful is related to wider forces. The research for this book was conducted between the years 2015 and 2021. The post-2008 global economic recession had already severely affected Liverpool, with funding for some of the most seriously deprived areas of the city being removed. Also, according to the Centre for Cities Outlook report, 2015, by 2015, the city continued to have some of the highest levels of unemployment in the UK. Bearing in mind the stark socio-economic context, the continued ability of Liverpool to generate music-led economic growth in this period was a considerable achievement. Culture Liverpool's 2018 report indicated music became increasingly economically important to the city with an estimated turnover of 100.5 million for its core music economy at the time, BOP Consulting 2018. Such success, though, provides a slightly misleading picture. As will be argued, it belies the way that within a city like Liverpool, some music scenes, such as those connected with metal, are not as equal as others. Partly influenced by ecological perspectives on the study of live music industry, this book will reveal how to some extent changes to the built environment in parts of Liverpool and Merseyside have restricted opportunities for engagement with heavy rock and metal music scenes. Scenes, therefore, as Keith Carn-Harris asserted in his early work on extreme metal, can limit or open possibilities to follow particular trajectories. Nonetheless, as he goes on to write, these possibilities are not simply drawn on by individuals or groups but are continually being reformulated, negotiated and contested. This book focuses on individuals and groups based in the Merseyside area who are actively involved with the hard rock and metal music scenes in various ways. It reveals how their understandings of scenes were contested, shifting and connected with translocal and global relationships, many of which were increasingly virtual. Yet it is also made clear that, for many, notions of locality mattered. As will be revealed, many of the people interviewed for this book were invested in and passionate about the idea of sustaining a local scene, even if in some cases they bemoaned its deterioration. Metal in Liverpool Prior to an examination of people's perceptions of Merseyside metal and hard rock scenes, both past and present, it is useful at this point to briefly discuss the ways the participants in such scenes narrated the overall relationship between metal music and the city of Liverpool. This discussion will serve to reveal how understandings of this relationship were informed by Liverpool's status as a city of music. 
a city that has already been suggested as being overdetermined by historical and heritage-related grand narratives that have privileged other genres, locations and moments. In a similar way to Andy Bennett's research on the music scene in Canterbury, UK, the city of Liverpool constituted a kind of urban mythscape for research participants. However, while to an extent mediated information about the city of Liverpool was recontextualised into new ways of thinking about and imagining places, this was not usually to celebrate the distinctiveness of a decontextualised Liverpool sound as such. Rather, because their understandings were embedded in the live experiences of dwelling in the city and observing changes to the popular musicscape, Liverpool was sometimes constructed in a far more critical manner. Firstly, there was an acknowledgement that the Beatles constituted a dominant feature of heritage narratives which in turn fed into discussions about metal music in the city. For instance, extreme metal fan Andrew Carr asserted in an interview that I suppose the Beatles will be very influential on the metal scene, not in a direct musical sense, but in a way that they influenced Liverpool's culture in general. Liverpool is one of those cities which always has had an us-against-the-world attitude. It's always had the we're-proud-of-our-sons-and-daughters type thing. As much as metalheads tend to try and see ourselves as different from the wider society and stuff like that, it rubs off on you. My dad loves the Beatles, my mum loves the Beatles, and they were from Liverpool and they made it. They were from a shithole of a city and they made it big and they changed music forever. That sort of attitude of being proud of those people, stick behind them and have their back because they're one of us, they came from the local area. That sort of attitude seeped through. In this instance, although they are celebrated, the Beatles are constructed as significance because they overcame conditions in a city that are characterised by deprivation, a shithole, to become icons that people in Liverpool could be proud of. In other circumstances, the Beatles were considered as something that artists from the hard rock and metal scene wanted to distinguish themselves from. Jay Lashbrook, a bassist who played with several hard rock bands, discussed how he and his bandmates felt the need to break away from the metaphorical shackles that the Beatles were to us. This did not mean that he did not feel influenced by existing notions of Liverpool's music heritage, as he explained. In Crash Rehearsal Studios, there's a plaque against the wall, and it's showcasing every single band that's ever practised there. As in every band that made it, you got the likes of, off the top of my head, Atomic Kitten, Lou Reed practised there, and using the rehearsal space from before, I think that that was a way to really give the impression that we were, perhaps, contributing to what was previously been, whilst at the same time trying to break away from that. Except the Beatles, I think the Beatles were always the kind of, no, no, we're not part of that. But Echo and the Bunnymen rehearsed here. Thus, when it came to the Beatles, Jay was unequivocal. He did not want to be associated with them. This was perhaps partly because of their enormous success and global significance that was perhaps perceived as incomparable. But Jay also conveyed a sense that there was substantial presence in historical representations of Liverpool's music had almost become a meta-narrative that rock artists did not want to engage with. Other artists were less troubled by the Beatles, at least in the sense that they did not feel that need to express the desire to move away from them. However, the more powerful hierarchical status of the group and the notion that they would always be emblematic of Liverpool's overarching music scene was still affirmed. For instance, death metal musician and promoter Joe Mortimer stated that When we have been interviewed and reviewed and stuff, everybody always brings up the Beatles. It always happens and that is obviously what Liverpool will probably always be famous for. The inevitability of the Beatles' continued dominance within Liverpool's musical heritage was clearly articulated in this type of testimony. Yet, interestingly, several interviewees sought to place Liverpool metal bands within established canons. For instance, Joe went on to say that 
If you spoke to any average Joe on the street, bands from Liverpool are the Beatles, Jerry and the Pacemakers, bands who have reached a pinnacle, kind of bands like Echo and the Bunnymen and stuff like that. You can't get away from stuff like that, but then, as you go down the list, you will eventually reach the likes of Anathema and Carcass, and you start digging up some other names and stuff. Others portrayed Liverpool as having a rich, extreme metal heritage, and went as far as asserting that one of the city's characteristic sounds was certain subgenres of metal. Andy Thews, who owns metal music promotion company Deathwave Entertainment, described this most fully when discussing the differences between the Liverpool and Manchester metal scenes. The bands from Liverpool and the bands from Manchester, historically, Liverpool is heavier. Liverpool is heavier in what it wants from bands. It's heavier in what's expected. If you're a death metal band in Liverpool, you're pretty much automatically do quite well. You look at the history of Liverpool in the 80s. We had all those problems where Margaret Thatcher had been recorded as actually saying, I think it was released last year or something, she'd love to wipe Liverpool off the map if she could. She was that harsh. Then, Napalm Death, even though they're from Birmingham, they've got links to Liverpool. Carcass, probably our biggest musical export for metal, when did they start? Was it 84? I think the first album was 88 and then 89. They started in 84 or 86. Anathema being part of who are essentially responsible for a lot of the doom, death in the world, which there are doom, death bands all over the world now. Carcass helped form grindcore and arguably more death metal. So there's three genres that might not exist without the influence of Liverpool music. I personally think a lot of this stems from the plight and the hardship of the late 80s in the city. The impact of Liverpool's adverse socio-economic conditions in the 1980s, which were partially exasperated by Thatcher's government's policy of managed decline, had become a central aspect of how Andy understands the historical significance of the city's metal bands. For him, contrary to the historical account of De Neuer, mentioned earlier, metal is not only part of Liverpool's music history, it is the characteristic of the city. Extreme metal, in particular, is constructed as strongly tied to Liverpool. Such discourse, therefore, sets out an alternative heritage narrative for Liverpool's music. It reveals that, beyond the authorised versions of the city's music history, there are competing ideas about the canon of artists that are worth celebrating and remembering. However, while such narratives are interesting, they should not be taken at face value. Firstly, we need to be careful when isolating musical styles to specific regions because music scenes have porous boundaries that are difficult to confine to local areas. Secondly, as Cope points out in his work on pioneering British heavy metal band Black Sabbath and their relationship to the UK city of Birmingham, it is difficult to empirically substantiate the relationship between music and environment. Thus, although extreme metal bands like Carcass and Anathema emerged from the Merseyside area when it was an enduring period of socio-economic decline, specifying the extent to which this had had any bearing on the music is a challenging task. Indeed, responding to the notion that Liverpool was considered by some to have an extreme metal heritage because of bands like Carcass, Jeff Walker, the bassist and vocalist for the band, stated that It's that Scouse pride, isn't it? We never considered ourselves a local band, but I am happy if I get lumped in with the bands from Liverpool. I don't have a problem with that, even though I wasn't born there. I feel that we give the city something to be happy about in the metal scene. Bill Steer was born in the North East anyway, and the original drummer Ken Owen was born in Billage, which is near Wigan. Walker himself grew up in St Helens, a town that has its roots in Lancashire. Even though it was being part of the country of Merseyside since 1974, people in St Helens often downplay cultural connections to Liverpool, whereas people from parts of Liverpool are identified and often self-identified as Scouts. Due to the distinctive accents, this has not been historically been the case for people from St Helens. 
Instead, locals from Liverpool tend to refer to people from St Helens as woollybacks to indicate the fact that they often do not sound Scouse but have more Lancastrian or Mancunian vocal inflections. Furthermore, many people from St Helens actively resist being associated with Liverpool and resent being called Scousers. This is evident to anyone who has ever been to a rugby league derby match between St Helens and their fierce local neighbours Wigan. Wigan fans use the term Scousers to mock and irate St Helens fans. Such nuances of local identity and difference then make the idea of Carcass being part of a Liverpool music heritage problematic. Reflecting upon the relationship between songwriting and place, Walker also downplayed the notion that his writing was influenced by his surroundings. I don't think that they have at all. We're not the Kinks, name-dropping landmarks every two minutes, or the Beatles. We're a product of our environment, but not in a way that we're name-dropping. It's hard to explain. We're products of our upbringing, but not necessarily the towns we're from. It's hard to explain. I mean, I guess St Helens was my little world when I was a kid, and it was the world. I mean, it seemed like a massive place. You go there now, and it's like a freaking ghost town. The whole industry is gone. It's derelict. But, I guess in a way, I suppose it's that romantic idea that we maybe wanted to break out from there. We didn't really realise it. Such testimony, therefore, serves as a reminder that drawing comparisons between artists, music or songs and their places of origin can be a flawed exercise from a historical or empirical perspective. Nonetheless, these challenges do not invalidate the narratives from Liverpool scene members mentioned above. As Cohen found with her interviews with the rock musicians during the 1980s and 1990s, people's narratives about the relationship between a city and its sound do not merely operate at the level of individual discourse. People who feel part of a scene and dwell within a particular locality are embedded in webs of kinship and collective memory, located within a cognitive map defined by factors such as ethnicity and religion within a city marginalised and ostracised in terms of power and resources on a national level. Although she was writing in 1994, the point that music and people's understanding of it are inflected by these factors remain an important one. The collective memory of difficult periods in a city's history that affected many families still resonates with many individuals when they are recontextualising their experiences in the present. Significantly, Andy Hughes' narration of Liverpool's historical heaviness and extreme metal sound presaged a critical discussion of a contemporary theme that strongly emerged during the research for this book. Namely, the closure, demolition or shifting of key live music venues in the city. Like his earlier assertions about the connections between Liverpool and metal music, his discourse in relation to this subject was grounded in his understanding and experiences of the material conditions within the locality. Commenting on the loss of smaller venues that have been prominent in the housing of metal gigs, Andy remarked, What's left of our venues is slowly being handed over to large corporate entities who are a bit like Bumper, a student venue that hosted metal gigs but has since been taken over and rebranded. It's just a transaction. There's no interest. Andy saw the situation as something completely at odds within the way in which Liverpool had been marketed as a city of music. As he put it, if you go on the Liverpool tourism website, this, that and the other, you'll find all sorts of stuff about the Beatles there. Liverpool has got a reputation. Liverpool markets itself, it has a reputation as a city of music, but does absolutely fuck all to support the stance other than advertising. Andy's discussion then continued into a more specific critique of regeneration strategies that move beyond the consideration of metal venues. The authorities are dismantling our entertainment industry and potentially dismantling part of our own heritage without even realising. Cream is definitely part of Liverpool's musical heritage. It's one of the largest dance promotions names in the world. Knocking down cream was tantamount to knocking down the cavern within that genre. This critique, therefore, indicates that even venues that are previously celebrated as part of narratives about Liverpool's musical heritage were not immune to regeneration. 
The Nation nightclub that had housed the internationally successful dance music club Cream was closed in 2015 to make way for the redevelopment of the Wollaston Square area of the city centre. Furthermore, it is important to note that the original Cavern Club has been allowed to be demolished in 1973 before being rebuilt in 1984. Such examples illustrate the contradictions between heritage narratives about Liverpool and the pressures of regeneration within the city. Thews's concerns as a metal music promoter about the vulnerability of venues he had worked with was predicated on the knowledge that far more legendary venues had still not been spared from such pressures. In Chapter 3, these issues will be examined more closely. For now, however, it is important to note how Thews's experiences as key intermediary on the Liverpool metal scene, his promotions company had just celebrated its 10th anniversary at the time of writing, were also shaped by his broader sense of the city's music heritage. Despite the difficulties with empirically identifying the connections between music and place, notions of Liverpool and its musical legacy still loomed large. Liverpool in Metal The above-mentioned characterisation of the city of Liverpool in terms of its hardship is also interesting to consider in connection to some artists' lyrical content. Certain metal bands from Merseyside draw upon themes of urban deprivation that explicitly refer to people, events and parts of Liverpool and its surrounding area. For instance, Joe Mortimer, bassist for the former brutal death metal band Euroma, had described how their lyrical themes and satirical social commentary influenced by growing up in parts of Liverpool. He went on to state that We are all from relatively working class backgrounds and have all grown up hanging out at Quiggins and just hanging out as mates and skateboarding and doing stupid stuff, replicating jackass and all that when we were teenagers. We have all had relatively Liverpool-esque upbringing styles with families and that. Neuroma had started writing songs about stuff we see, almost dire straits in a way. Dire straits always write about what they see and actually write a story about what they see. We did the same thing. We had a sense of humour, which I think is very unique to Liverpool. That certain blend into our themes, the front cover of Northern Discomfort, was like an alleyway with somebody being stabbed and robbing stuff from them. And it was called Northern Discomfort as opposed to Southern Comfort, like the drink. It was down an alley. It was all grotty and stuff like that. Liverpool definitely bled into us. Musically, I wouldn't say so, but lyrically and thematically, certainly. We have a story about Purple Aki, who was a famous person from the Merseyside area, which in the early days became our anthem for what of a better phrase. But we wrote about stuff which we heard and knew about and joked about ourselves. Despite frontman Jeff Walker's indication that his songwriting was not directly influenced by his surroundings, one of the most striking allusions to deprivation within Liverpool comes within the song by death metal band Carcass. Their track... Child's Play for their 1985 album Swan Song reimagines the Beatles' Strawberry Fields Forever, which was considered as a song that evokes idyllic images from John Lennon's childhood, in place of literally allusions and references to children's literature that are throughout the Beatles' song. Child's Play promises to take the listener down, not to Strawberry Fields of John Lennon's middle-class childhood in Liverpool, but to an urban Liverpool that breeds deprivation, decay and violence. Thus, in the Carcass song, children are raised amidst corrosion and nurtured within a concrete crib. In place of the nostalgic pastoral sensibility evidenced in Strawberry Fields Forever, Child's Play alludes to the notion that the urban settings of childhood in some parts of Liverpool in the mid-1990s were characterised by hopelessness. As Walker confirmed in an interview, that's possibly one of the only carcass songs that really is about Liverpool, to be honest. It's about how shitty it was at the time. I mean, when I first started coming into Liverpool, there were still buildings in the city centre that had been bombed in the war. They were derelict, you know? It's just insane. If you look at Liverpool now, it's changed. In the past, it was like the docks before they did them up. It was just derelict. Consequently, the Liverpool, the song is distinctly anti-pastoral, 
and consequently emphasizes the role of urban conditions in facilitating degeneration and degradation, as illustrated in references to redevelopments lying in ruins, squalor and dereliction. As this introduction has elucidated, the articulation of Liverpool with heavy metal music can lay bare anxieties about urban change. It can also foster critical reflections upon the hidden status of metal music within the city's heritage, narratives as well as critical scrutiny of those narratives in general. The chapters that follow build on and develop these themes. Chapter 2 traces the historical development of hard rock and metal music in Liverpool and Merseyside, paying particular attention to the role of music venues. It argues that for significant periods of the late 20th century, such venues fostered emerging rock and metal scenes. It will also demonstrate that these venues became important for enabling many people involved with these scenes to feel safe and to develop a sense of community and belonging. In contrast with Chapter 2, Chapter 3 reveals how, especially since the turn of the new millennium, there has been a more or less constant turnover of music venues for rock and metal within Liverpool. It argues that an array of factors including urban regeneration and gentrification, the loss of key venues and gathering spaces, success of neighbouring Manchester's early investments in arenas have precipitated a perception that Liverpool's metal scenes lack stability. Chapter 4 then focuses more fully on the concept of Liverpool metal scene or scenes. It critically scrutinises people's different perceptions of contemporary metal scenes in the city and reveals that, despite often competing evaluations of such scenes, the overall notion of the scene remains a powerful one that is often conceived of in ideal terms. Devotion to metal music was a significant part of everyday lives of several people interviewed for this book. Chapters 5 and 6 focus on the way in which promoters, musicians, DJs and fans had scenic careers in that they balanced the demands of investment in metal scenes with the demands of other areas of their daily lives. Chapter 5 focuses especially on the work of promoters and demonstrates how involvement with the cultural production of metal music events made many demands on everyday personal relationships with families, friends and partners. Such work will be revealed as involving types of emotional labour, in that the feelings connected with fandom, such as a passion for artists or subgenres, became integral to working practice. Musicians, promoters and fans, sometimes individuals had identities as all three, often saw their labour as an extension of their fandom. Yet, as with other areas of cultural production, working on something they loved did not make the risks and demands involved with this labour any less challenging. As with much creative labour in neoliberal capitalist economies, the work that several people featured in this book have undertaken for significant periods of their lives characterised by precariousness, financial losses, long, unsocial hours outside of a regular day job and associated strains on personal relationships were commonplace. Equally, as commonplace was a strong sense of entrepreneurship, pride in a DIY attitude and a sense of camaraderie and community. Chapter 6 illuminates some of these points via a consideration of some of the ways in which those on the Merseyside metal scene utilise a diversity of communications media. It examines cultures of collaboration between musicians, promoters, fans and a range of other intermediaries, as well as focus on how the use of social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter by these groups and individuals is indicative of an increasingly entrepreneurial tendency. Several chapters that follow then also take on McRobbie's often unheeded call to examine the hidden economy of subcultural production. The latter part of this book in particular contributes to existing research into cultural production and live music industries by applicating how labour is experienced and how it involves a range of skills and qualities. Teamwork, problem solving, interpersonal skills and even crisis management are often essential for this kind of work. Approaching Metal on Merseyside 
Reflections on Methodology. To gain insight into the above-mentioned practices, this book makes extensive use of ethnographical data, discussing the use of ethnography. Anthropologists Sarah Curran writes that the anthropologist aims to learn the culture or subculture they are studying and come to interpret or experience it in the same way that those involved in that culture do. That is, to discover the way in which their social world or reality is constructed and how particular events acquire meaning for them in particular situations. Thus, ethnographers generally aim to achieve what might be simplistically termed as an insider's perspective. Ethnographers aim to become intimately familiar with their field. Between 2015 and 2021, this is the methodical approach that I utilised. I drew on contacts with existing participants who were already known to me and through key informants I was able to engage in snowball sampling whereby they introduced me to other potential interviewees. The research for this book sought to be people-centred in that it located scene members' important sites of knowledge. Thus, the ethnographic interviews that form the primary foundation of this account pay explicit attention to discourse within the Merseyside metal scene. In other words, I attempted to scrutinise the ways people socially demonstrate their knowledge of the Liverpool and Merseyside metal scenes and how they conceptualise that scene, or indeed scenes. I also attended 35 metal concerts and festivals in the Merseyside area during this period, most of which took place in the Liverpool city centre. At these events, I conducted participant observation, which in this context meant that I engaged in similar practices to other metal fans in order to try and become actively involved in the scene. While not attempting to replicate what Richard et al. called moshography and fully immerse myself within the moshpit culture at these gigs, I was nonetheless engaging in other common forms of fan practice such as headbanging in time to the music. I also chatted with other fans, bought merchandise from the bands and talked to them in the process, as well as getting to know the promoters of the events. This fieldwork also involved the collection of relevant scene niche media, such as flyers, advertising events and following bands and promoters across social media platforms. Furthermore, sections of this book are based on a more autho-ethnographic approach. This was necessitated by the fact that during the process of research for this book, I became increasingly close to the field of study. Specifically, the chief editor of a Mersey-based webzine, Get Into This, asked if I would be interested in writing a regular monthly column on metal music. This voluntary role involves writing about metal music in a journalistic style that fits the parameters of website writing. The monthly column focused on a range of topics, from the importance of Bloodstock Open Air Festival for nurturing new artists, to the representation of gender in brutal death metal. Additionally, the format that I was asked to follow required short reviews of new albums and updates on events happening both locally in Merseyside, but also on a national and international level. While a regular columnist for the web scene, March 2018 to June 2020, I wrote several gig previews, feature articles, reviews and news items. Initially, my motivation for accepting a role as a writer for the web scene connected with the desire to maintain and develop contacts within the Merseyside metal scene. Given that I was making connections with metal musicians, many of whom were balancing day jobs or studies with their commitments to bands, it seemed that if I could present myself as both a metal journalist and academic, then that would be more appealing to them. Thus, in return for their time spent during interviews, I could also write about their music for the web scene. Indeed, during some research interviews, it was necessary to switch between different persona. I would state that I was putting my journalistic head on now before asking questions that were more in line with what the web scene were interested in, such as the details of forthcoming events and albums. Additional motivation for continuing the writing of the web scene stemmed from the fact that it compelled me to maintain regular fieldwork. Even during busy periods on the academic calendar, when my job as a senior lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University required a substantial amount of teaching, marking and administration, 
The fact that I had a monthly column to write forced me to find the time to think about the Merseyside metal scene. Furthermore, having committed to reviewing specific gigs, the imperatives of review deadlines compelled me to reflect upon my experiences as such gigs in a timely manner. However, as my commitments to the role of writer and columnist for the web scene grew, my experiences prompted me to reflect further upon my approach to ethnographic fieldwork and my status as a researcher. In particular, these reflections focused on two aspects, my fandom and my evolving role as an insider within the Merseyside metal scene. Despite having been a fan of hard rock and metal music for over 30 years, when I embarked on ethnographic research within the Merseyside metal scene, I had no strong affiliation to that scene. Aside from attending a few high-profile rock and metal gigs in Liverpool city centre and occasionally going for a drink in the well-known rock biker pub The Swan Inn, I knew little about Merseyside-based musicians and the scenes that they were connected to. However, this began to change once I started to immerse myself in the scene through participants' observation at events like small gigs featuring local bands or events organised by locally-based promoters. Kirsten Hastrup usefully describes this kind of activity involved with participants' observation as the process of becoming She writes, the kind of participation needed to identify events and write real cultures cannot be glossed as mere being in the field. It implies a process of becoming. Hastrup goes on to write that, one is not completely absorbed in the other world, but one is also no longer the same. The change often is so fundamental that it is difficult to see how the field worker has any identity with her former self. Dwelling in different music venues, interacting with scene members either in person or on social media, had a profound impact on my sense of identity, both as a researcher and as a metal music fan. My participation in the field precipitated a process of becoming and my sense of identity shifted in several ways. Firstly, given the changes with live music venues that will be outlined in the chapters that follow and the challenges the promoters face when organising gigs, as I frequented more concerts, I began to feel a sense of loyalty to the scene. Therefore, I began to feel guilty if I could not go to certain events due to other work or family commitments. Moreover, as I began to write more for the web scene, my affective attachment and a feeling that I was advocating for the Merseyside metal scene increased. This was because my writing about forthcoming events and news about bands was being read and shared among different groups and communities on social media. Secondly, while my initial intentions were to use the writing for the web scene as a means of enhancing my research, it soon became apparent that this journalistic writing was a source of personal pleasure. The freedom to write in a non-academic style for the entertainment of others was rather liberating. In a similar way to Catherine M. Roach's approach to participants' observation in popular romance studies, I began to embrace the production of this writing on its own terms. I had shifted from primarily being a participant observer of the metal scene to somebody involved in active construction, and I became invested in this role. Finally, this increased effective investment was coupled with a greater awareness of my own fandom. I was writing for other fans about how I felt at gigs or how news of forthcoming events made me feel. At the same time, I was making time to listen to more music by metal artists I had previously done, including music by local artists. Consequently, I developed a stronger appreciation for that music, and this fed into my enthusiasm for the overall genre and for the Merseyside scene. Although she uses the term to refer to the writing of a romance fiction, in many senses I was becoming what Roach terms the Acker fan writer. She uses the triple hybrid term in order to capture the multiplicity of identity that this position entails. I was simultaneously occupying the position of an academic studying the Merseyside scene, a fan who was listening to the music on a regular basis, and an inside practitioner writing about the scene from a journalistic perspective and keeping others informed about it. 
The importance of reflecting on the types of role an ethnographic researcher adopts during participant observation and the merits of writing in a manner that acknowledges the researcher's personal experiences have been well documented. Yet, despite the risks involved with adopting the insider emic perspective, emotional and subjective investments in the culture in too full a manner, Roach makes clear that an ACA fan can engage in what she terms observance participation. This concept is used to signify the shift that takes place when the researcher as an outsider comes to participate more deeply and more fully as insiders and then reflectively observes themselves as participants, as well as their own process of observation along with the native cultural participants. The value of this approach is that the fuller participation provides the researcher with stronger insights into the effective dimensions of the cultures under scrutiny. It facilitates an understanding of how it feels to be involved with the types of labour involved with making metal music on Merseyside. This is something that anthropologist Victor Turner advocated in his work on performance ethnography. Turner has argued that the processes involved with the ethnographic research on cultural practices are often predominantly cognitive. That is, they involve mental processes of perceiving and reasoning on the part of the ethnographer. Such ethnographies may then prioritise what research subjects think about certain activities and so on, rather than what they feel or experience. However, as Turner asserts, feeling and will, as well as thoughts, constitute the structures of culture. Consequently, during the teaching on their anthropology of performance, Turner encouraged students to enact the actions and inactions they have described in their ethnographic field notes. This, he proposed, would help to expose the gaps in field notes and monographs because social actions may feel different to how they are thought about, observed and described. Thus, as my research on the Merseyside metal scene was informed by my perspective as an ACA fan writer, actively mediating aspects of the scene and facilitating an appreciation of defective elements involved with producing this music scene. Ultimately, however, the pages that follow are heavily reliant on oral testimony. Scene members' accounts of their experiences are vital if you are to move beyond dominant discourses and appreciate histories and practices that have been largely hidden. From the travails of promoters balancing the preparation of extreme metal gigs with the demands of their family lives, to musicians drawing on social media to publicise their music, this book explores the minutiae of scenic activity. The examination of this activity also lays bare several contradictions at the heart of one of the world's most mythologised music cities. If you enjoyed this reading, uh, I encourage you to actually check out the whole book. That was uh, me reading the first uh, foreword and chapter one of Nadima San's Metal on Merseyside, Music Scenes, Community and Locality. I want to say thanks again to Palgrave Macmillan and Emily Russell there for letting me read that opening opening chapter. Wow, audiobooks are hard. As you can hear, I'm mispronouncing words and, and all the rest of it. And it's hard to get the flow of things and all that together. But I hope I give you a sense and a flavour of, of Ned's book. It, as you can see from the very first chapter, how much heart and passion went into his writing and how much you know he, he really did Im- embed himself in the scene and then became part of the scene and became someone who was in- incredibly critically important to the scene as well, uh, which is a very beautiful story in itself. As you can see by, or here, I should say, you can hear the how complicated and uninvolved he got he got into it. How the, he really did look deep into the into the soul of, of Liverpool's uh, music and metal scene, and I think generated some really interesting ideas and talking points on there, and came to some very fascinating conclusions. I'll post links as always to um, to buy the book, and you know, who knows, we might get to. I, you know, I don't know if I could read the whole book because it just that audio book was was tough in itself to to record as as well as I tried my best to. I hope you enjoyed it. I really hope you did. It was something different, something interesting, and a nice treat. Um, for for the for the listeners out there, 
Once again, um, I will uh, thank you for listening to the show, but I really would suggest buying the book. And not only will you see me at a show, you'll probably see Ned too.